Please turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Now it's going to take me to read this whole chapter. It's going to take me a while to read this whole chapter. So, no, just kidding. Um, actually, verse 17. And uh, I'm going to read for you verses 17 through 24. It says, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So, what is Psalm 119 about? If you're familiar with the Bible at all, Uh, The first thing that should snap into your mind as I ask you that question is, Psalm 119 is about the Word of God. If you know anything about the Bible, you know Psalm 119 is the Word of God and that it is uh, the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, So when you come to your reading, as if you read, you're in the habit of reading through Scripture, you come to Psalm 119, this is the one that you dread because you know you can't get through it in five minutes. It's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. So, okay. What is Psalm 119 about? Right. Psalm 119 is about the Bible, right? It's about the Bible. Um, But Psalm 119 is really much more than that. In Psalm 119, we don't just read about the Bible. We hear what a godly, humble, broken man says out loud in the presence of God. We hear, we're kind of looking over the shoulder of this man, this godly man, King David, as he talks to God, we, we see his joy, we hear his pleasure, we, we hear his desperate need, his open adoration of God, we hear his blunt requests, the things that he says to God, God, do this for me, do it now, I need you to do this for me, God, do this for me. We see all these blunt requests that he asks of God. We see his candid assertions about himself, his confessions of his own sin, his own weakness, his own brokenness, his deep struggles. If you read Psalm 119, you'll see fiercely good intentions. I will walk in your ways. I will keep your commandments. And so, yes, Psalm 119 says a lot about the Bible, about the Word of God. There's um, every... Verse in Psalm 119 has some reference to Scripture in it. God's Word, God's commandments, God's laws, God's statutes, God's rules. It has a lot to say about the Word of God. But there are words that appear many, many, many more times than words like commandment, law, Scripture, Word, rules. Four times an average of four times in every verse of Psalm 119, you hear words like I. And you. 
I talk to you, God, about what your words mean in my life. That's what Psalm 119 is about. So if I ask you, what is Psalm 119 all about? And you and you answer, it's about the word of God. I'm only going to give you partial credit for that. It's not just about the word of God. It's not just a meditation on the importance of God's word. This psalm is actually not about the topic of getting scripture into your life at all. That's not what it's about at all. It's not about the topic of getting scripture into your life. Psalm 119 is not a meditation about anything. It's not this cold, detached, intellectual contemplation about a topic. Psalm 119 is about true religion, experiential religion, religion that isn't just in your head, but that moves you. It's not a lecture about its tasting. It's not just theory, but living experience. Psalm 119 is designed to totally re-script the inner logic that's motoring in your heart right now. Every one of us has a set of assumptions and a set of logic, a grid that we pass everything through, and every one of us is doing that right now. And Psalm 119 is designed to change all of that. And this re-scripting, this rewriting the code, this rewriting the inner logic that we read everything through, is not an automatic result of rubbing shoulders with the Bible. It's how many of us approach the Bible. We think, okay, I've got to take my two verses in the morning, or my two chapters, or whatever it is, and that somehow will rub off on me. I'll thread the words through my eyes, and somehow that will change me. That is not what happens. That is not how it works. Because when you read the Bible, you read the Bible with the grid of your inner logic. You know what it's like to read Scripture and have the constant tendency to mishear what God is really saying and to absolutely fail to apply this Scripture to the real details of our lives where it really hurts. You've all done this. I've done this. You've seen other people do it. You've seen people who are reading Scripture And it's completely obvious to you that that scripture is speaking to them. And if they had actually gotten a hold of it, it would change everything. And you're thinking, how can they possibly miss this? Of course, they're saying the same thing about you. (laughs) We have a tendency to hear the word of God and think somehow it'll it'll just rub off on us. And that's not the way it works. You have to, on purpose, rewire the way that you actually think about everything as you come face to face with God in Scripture. And so what we have in Psalm 119 is the words of a man who has been absolutely changed by the Word of God. His actions have been changed. His words have been changed. His basic assumptions about himself and about God and everything in the world have been changed. And you see those assumptions coming out of his mouth in what he says. What I want for us to do in these verses this morning is to think about the assumptions that the psalmist makes. What is actually underneath those words that make those words make sense? 
What is it about the way he thinks that make those words come out of his mouth? Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is the overflow out of the mouth of a man whose heart has been changed, whose basic assumptions, whose logic that he functions out of has been completely changed. So what are they? What's going on in the back of his mind that makes these words make sense? What is his underlying view of God? What's his underlying view of himself and about everything else that come out in these words? If we don't understand these assumptions, and more importantly, if we don't make these assumptions our own, all we'll have is a nice poem about the Bible in Psalm 119. Let's think about his underlying assumptions. What's the, um, what's the underlying assumptions? What are the underlying assumptions behind his words in verse 17? Verse 17 says, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. What are the underlying assumptions there? I think there are about three about men. So I'm going to look at the assumptions about himself and then assumptions about God. First of all, assumptions about himself. Um, number one, life is a gracious gift of God. You see that? I mean, those words make no sense unless you, if, unless you start there. Lord, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live. Life is a gracious gift of God. That's an assumption that makes those words make sense. Number two, the ability to keep God's word is a gracious gift of God. Otherwise, why would he ask him for the ability to obey him? Deal bountifully with your servant so that I can live and keep your word. I can't keep your word unless you deal bountifully with me. And then he thinks of himself, this is an assumption written through all of this whole psalm, but certainly in these words, he sees himself as a servant of God. Deal bountifully with your servant. And we'll see that this whole stanza, this whole passage drips with humility before God. What about, we're going to come back to these in a second, but what about his assumptions about God? Well, at least two. Number one, that God is the source of life and ability, right? We've talked about that. That's why he calls out to him and asks him to give me these things. But number two, God is able and willing to deal bountifully with his servants. God is both able and willing to deal bountifully with his servants. Let's think about these, uh, these assumptions one at a time. Do, does God's word bear out those assumptions? Is this the way that the Bible as a whole shapes our thinking about us and about God? Well, what about the first one? Does life itself depend on God? If you take... Scripture as the Word of God, if that's your presupposition, that this is the Word of God and, and God speaks with absolute authority, absolute clarity, absolute truth in His Word, then that one is a no-brainer. Of course, of course, Scripture teaches that life depends on God. Acts 17.25, the Apostle Paul, as he's preaching to pagans who do not share this assumption, he says, he is not served, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is a basic assumption that we have. Everything comes from God. What about the other assumption about himself? Underlying verse 17. The other assumption is, 
Not only do we all need God to give us life, we also need God to give us ability to obey Him. Now, does Scripture bear that out? Is that the teaching of the Bible? That not just does God give you life, but He also, you are absolutely dependent on Him to give you the ability to obey Him and to believe in Him and to walk with Him. What about what Jesus says? Jesus says in John 5.44, when He's speaking to a group of unbelieving men who are proud men, who live for nothing more, nothing greater than the praise of men. He says to them, how can you believe? How can you? How can you believe? He's saying, there's no surprise to me that you don't believe in me. How could you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. If that is the basic thing about you, that you seek glory, praise, honor, recognition from men, that all of your world revolves around men, around the people around you, liking you, accepting you, praising you, if that is your basic mode of operating, Jesus says, how how could you possibly believe? How could you possibly believe if you don't live oriented towards God? Caring more about what He thinks of you than you care about what your professors think of you. So he's talking about ability. John 6.44, he says something very similar. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Now, Uh, You all have been in fourth grade, or you are in fourth grade. Some of the kids in here, I think all the fourth graders are gone. Somewhere around fourth grade, you learn, maybe earlier, that when you raise your hand in the middle of class, and you say to the teacher, Teacher, can I go to the bathroom? Right? And what does the teacher say to you? Yes. That's right. Of course you can. But no, you may not. They drive into you the difference between can and may. Can is about ability. Yes, you are able to go to the bathroom. But no, you may not. So can is about ability. May is about um, permission. What does Jesus say here? John 6:44. No one may come to me. That's not what he says. No one can come to me. You are not able to come to God or to come to Jesus Christ, he says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father who sent me draws you. Same thing he says in John 6, 63 to 65. Just listen to these words. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Then little parenthesis that John puts in, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. The the betrayal of Judas was no surprise to Jesus. He knew exactly what was going to happen from the beginning. He knew those of his disciples who believed and the one who would betray him. He knew it all. 
And then he goes on and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. So evidently there are some people who would not come to him because it was not granted to him by the father. That's what he says. No one can unless it's granted. And of course, if if it's granted to you by the father, you will come. He's talking about ability. Paul picks up on that idea. First. Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man, the man who does not have the Holy Spirit working in him, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now you don't want to hear that, I know. But this is what Jesus says. No man can come to me, no one is able To come to me, no one can believe unless a radical change of direction of heart happens first. Oriented away from man and towards God. No one can believe. No one can come. He is not able to understand. So yeah, these assumptions behind Psalm 119.17 are very biblical. We are dependent on God for life and for breath and for everything else, including our ability to believe him and to come to him and to understand his word and ultimately to obey him. We are dependent on God for all of that. You must do it, but you're dependent on God to be able to. Now, here's my question. Is that the way that you think about yourself? Do you have any self-consciousness, self-awareness of that? Is this the way that you really think about yourself? In your experience, in the way that you live out your life, in the practical details of your life, do you think of yourself as constantly, constantly, always dependent on God for everything? Does this enter into the way that you function at all, ever? Do you see everything as a mercy of God? Are you conscious all the time of your weakness and your neediness and your dependence on Him? There are millions of ways every day that you and I operate without any reference to God at all. We're godless. Godless. Most of the things that we say, most of the things that we do, most of the thoughts that we have, most of the interactions that we have are all as if God wasn't there at all. Why? It's because functional atheism is our most natural state of mind. Functional atheism. We live as if there is no God. And that is our most natural state of mind because we are fallen and we are sinners. How often do we operate without any sense at all of our desperate need for daily, continual mercies from God? Every one of us woke up this morning. I'm assuming. Every one of us woke up this morning. And how many of us said... 
the first thing that happened when our eyes opened and we became conscious. (laughs) Wow, God gave me sleep last night. And wow, God's caused me to wake up this morning. And look, I just turned around and put my feet on the floor. And that's a gift of God to me. Anyone have any of those thoughts this morning? We operate without any sense of our desperate need for daily mercies. Therefore, we have no impulse to call on Him. We have no impulse to call on Him because we don't have any sense of our need for Him. And we have no love for Him. Why isn't there love for God that dominates our thoughts, dominates our words, dominates our actions, dominates our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why is there no love for God that is shot through all of that stuff because we don't really think we have any need for Him. If we don't really think we have any need for Him, we won't have any sense of our desperation before Him. We will have no impulse to call on Him. After all, we just float through our life, we fight through our life, or we grind through our life on our own. Oh, no, yeah, we come and worship God on Sunday morning. Oh, yeah, yeah. And for most of us, there is this intense separation between your real life and what you say you believe about God. And it's just, it's everywhere. Or a normal assumption. Maybe not when we're going through, um, you know, in, in some kind of a theological debate, as if many of us ever get into theological debate, debates on a regular basis. But if you got into a theological debate, you would never say any of that. You'd give the right answer. But in the way that we actually work, when we're driving down the street, paying our bills, disciplining our kids, speaking with our husbands or wives about our day, God simply does not enter into the equation at all. Ever, anywhere. We're self-sufficient, self-satisfied, self-confident. This is why James says in James chapter 4, this is not neutral, this is not okay. He says, uh, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So what is he talking about? He's saying, you know, uh, we're just going to go about our life. We're going to do our business. We're going to go to work. We're going to we're going to go about our day T- tomorrow. We're going to go and we're going to we're going to do the things that we have to do to live in this world. He says, come on, come on. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord, wi- li- if the Lord wills, we will what? What's the next word? Live. Not if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. If the Lord wills, we'll live. And then do this or that. He says, as it is, you leave God out of all of that. You live, you go through all that life as if God wasn't there at all, as if you weren't dependent on God at all. As it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. It's evil. For us to live as if God doesn't exist, really. 
So Psalm 119.17 rewires all of that. Rewrites it. Rewires our assumptions about ourselves. I'm utterly dependent on God for my life. Utterly dependent on God for my ability to know Him, to obey Him, to keep His Word. I'm utterly dependent on God for everything. Is that how you think? What about its assumptions about God? We've already seen that um, there's this assumption that God is the source of all of life and, and all ability. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. What about the other assumption about God that drives that? God is able and willing to deal bountifully with his servants. That's the one we have trouble with in practice, isn't it? Do you really believe? Now, I want you to be honest with yourself and forget for please forget the right answer. And be honest with yourself. Do you really believe? And live as if. And you don't believe it unless you live as if. Do you live as if God is both able and willing to deal bountifully with you? Or do you assume that, yeah, God is able. God's able. He's able to do anything He wants to do. Of course He's able. But He's not willing to deal bountifully with me. Is that how you think? Is that the assumption underlying everything? In other words, do you think of God as a stingy, tight-fisted, grudging miser? God who is utterly rich and yet, you know, is Ebenezer Scrooge who holds it all for himself and might reluctantly fling you a coin every now and then. But it's not out of generosity and freeness and, and gladness of heart. It's because, I don't know, yeah, I guess I'll fling you a coin every now and then. Stop bothering me. Here, have a coin. Does your working view of God, your idea of God that is always playing in the background, that's always running in the background, that always gives rise to actually how you actually live, the operating system that's running in the background of your machine, that, that is the platform that makes everything else work. Does your operating system view of God assume that he is Ebenezer Scrooge? Again, forget the right answer. Tell me the real answer. Or do you have the psalmist view of God? Oh God, deal bountifully with me. You, you are no miser, God. You are not stingy. You are filled with free, abundant, rich grace for me. I expect you to be good to me. My basic assumption is that I'm going to come to you and my first assumption is that you will be good to me. Not because I am good, but because you are good. Is that the way that you function? If that is not your view of God, then you do not know the God of the Bible. You don't know Him deeply. 
It hasn't soaked in deeply to your roots yet. Listen to these words just just from the Psalms. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I know, I know I will enter your house because you have abundant, steadfast love. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. You've stored it up and you've, you've spat it out for me. For those who fear you and take refuge in you. Psalm 36, 8, They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. There is a house. God has a house that is filled with abundance that is laid out for you to feast from. God has delight for you to drink. Not a little sippy cup. Not even a well. But a river. Which one of you can drink dry a river? You could drink your fill until you're sloshing as you walk away. And you haven't touched it. God has a river of delights that you can drink from. Psalm 116.7, Return, O my soul. He's talking to himself. Return, O my soul. This is, how you, this is how you start to rewire the logic. Wait a minute. Return. Come back. Repent, O my soul. To your rest. Return to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. He has dealt bountifully with you. You know He's dealt bountifully with you. You know that He will deal bountifully with you. Drink it in. Does that sound like a miserly, stingy, mean little God to you? Now that's the Old Testament's view of God. New Testament says the same thing. Paul says things like this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. Abundant free gift. Take it. He says in Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. He talks about immeasurable riches of grace. Ephesians 2.7. Ephesians 3.8 talks about unsearchable riches. He talks about riches of His glory. Now, be honest with yourself. Is that your operational view of God or not? Is that the basic assumption that you wake up with every morning or not? Is that your basic assumption about God right now? Is that your basic assumption? Now, here's here's the question. How would you know if that's your basic assumption about God or not? It can't be, yeah, my theology that I have embraced in my intellect has told me that that is my basic view of God. That's not my question. My question is, is that you're really the way that you function? How would you know? Well, here's some ideas. How do you pray? That assumes that you do, so I guess the first question is, do you pray? And then how do you pray? 
What's it look like? Does it look like this? Psalm 119? What's it look like? How do you pray? What do you pray for? What do you value the most that comes out of your mouth when you're praying? What do you do when you know that you've sinned? You know what I do when I've sinned? Is I run away from God and I think I've got to shape myself up in order for Him to like me again. I'll do my penance. And then God might like me again when I've atoned for my sin. Is that the way that you respond when you sin? That's all driven by a basic assumption about what God is like. What do you do when you're tempted? Do you grit your teeth, hang on with white knuckles because you think the only way that I'll ever be able to face this temptation is if I have strength to hold on and grit my teeth and get through this? Or do you turn to God? What happens when trouble comes to you? What really happens? I mean, what happens when you get, a, when you get bad news? What happens when just the little details of life go wrong for you? You fly off the handle when you lose your car keys. You fly off the handle when um, traffic is stopped up in front of you and you've got to get somewhere where you're going. And you mean to tell me that your basic assumption is that God is good? Be honest with yourself. You know that's not true. Here's a good one that I've found uh, really lays me bare. How do you treat the people who are closest to you? There's a basic principle of Scripture that you will treat the people around you in exactly the way that you think God treats you. So how do you think God treats you? Well, it's shown by the way you treat people. Is everything critical with you? Are you always holding on to grudges? Are you always bitter? Are you always angry? Do you have any idea what it means to forgive the people who've sinned against you? If you don't know what it means to forgive people, you have not been forgiven. You haven't tasted it yet. Are you uh, Santa Claus? Um... Making a list, checking it twice, finding out who's been naughty and nice. Is that the way you interact with all the people in your world? If that's the way you interact with people, it's the way you think God is interacting with you. It's just simple. Lane just wrote a blog about this. Where are you? There he is. Right? About men interacting with women. The way you interact, men, the way you interact with your wives or your girlfriend or your fiance or just the women you come into contact with on a daily basis shouts volumes about the way you think Jesus Christ is. So here it is. No matter what we say we believe, we will act on what we really believe. How do you act? Now, I don't know what time it is. Five minutes? All right. Look at the rest of this psalm. 
Or the rest? No, not the rest of the psalm. Look at the rest of the stanza. Can you put this back up again? Look at verse 18. There's, a, there's another verse here. The rest of the psalm just overflows with, with the kind of things that you will think and do and the attitudes that you'll have if you get the assumptions of verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I have to depend on you for everything. You are the God who gives me life. You give me ability to obey you. You are filled with bounty and abundance. I can come to you and ask you for these kinds of things. God, give this to me. Deal bountifully with me. Therefore, O God, open your word to me. And if you find the word of God to be distant to you and to be cold to you, to be boring to you and to be dry to you like husks in your mouth, it's because you don't get verse 17. You yawn at the word of God. Or maybe it's a textbook, an interesting collection of interesting facts that you'll dissect and examine and and stand above and sit in judgment over in a cold, academic, detached way. It'll never touch and change you because you don't believe anything underlying verse 17. Sermons or academic lectures to you. Listen to the attitude. Listen to the attitude and the spirit in which he speaks. Verse 19, I am a sojourner on the earth. I am desperate. I am needy. This world is not my home. Hide not your commandments from me. I have to have you speaking to me. I have to have you. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Oh, no, 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 no. God isn't about rules. <laughs> Wait a minute. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I love to hear what you say to me. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. God, I rejoice in the fact that you, you rebuke and destroy those who hate you and who are proud. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies, even though princes sit plotting against me, even though professors sit plotting against me, even though city councilmen sit plotting against me, even though my parents who are not Christians sit plotting against me, even though my roommate sits plotting against me, even though my wife or my husband sits plotting against me. It means nothing to me because I will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Do you hear the, the spirit behind those words? Do you hear the attitude that makes those words flow out of his mouth? This is... 
what the Christian life should look like for every one of us who are Christians. There's this interactive, two-way street life of prayer going to God and God speaking through His Word to us. And there's an interaction and a feasting and a fellowship. And that pattern depends on getting certain basic assumptions right and actually living out of them. And our communion with God will only be formal and superficial unless we know deeply that God is the source of my life. God is the source of my ability to do anything, my ability to walk with Him, my ability to walk, my ability to speak, my ability to know anything comes from Him. God is able and willing to deal bountifully with me. There are wondrous things in God's Word for me. I can never see those wondrous things for what they really are without God's help. I must pray to God for His help. I am a sojourner on this earth and my real home is with God. And yes, I may be tempted, I may be attacked, I may be sinned against, but God is my delight and God's Word is my counselor. I live, I live out of my relationship with God. And you know nothing of the reality of those things if all of that sounds strange to you. And if you know nothing of the reality of those things, you need to deal honestly with yourself and very honestly with God. Not not that we always sense these things. Because we're frail and weak and clouded with sin that remains in us and with darkness. But do you have a taste for them? Do you have any kind of taste for these things? Do you want them? Do you mourn the fact that you're so pitiful in your living experience of these things? If you do, then be filled with hope. Because that sense of desire and of longing and even of, the, of, of inadequacy and weakness and lacking can only be the work of God's Spirit in you. You, wouldn't, you couldn't care less about this stuff if God wasn't working in you. You would be blind and dead to your need if God wasn't working in you. And there are some of you who are blind and dead to your need. The funny thing about spiritual blindness, physical blindness, you know, if you're physically blind, you are painfully, constantly aware of the fact that you're blind. If you're spiritually blind, the one thing you cannot see is the fact that you're spiritually blind. If you're proud, the one thing you cannot see is the fact that you're proud. And so if this stuff just seems crazy to you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And your only hope is to draw near to God, fall on your face, repent, and He will give you life. James says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, his assumptions, his motivations. Forsake it all. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This table that we're about to share together shouts at us all of that stuff. 
Return to the Lord. Come back to fellowship with Him. Repent of your pride. Repent of your godlessness. This table is the bounty of God laid for you. It's the bounty of God right now for us to feast on. It is a pointer to the fact that He has been ridiculously bountiful with us because He has given us His Son and He will come back again to rescue us from all of our sin. Will you feast on Him now or not? Let's pray together.